Revelation chapter 1, we're going to read the first three verses. Last week we got through five words. We're picking up the pace here. Revelation 1.1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that this morning your word would be very real to us and that your Holy Spirit would instruct us. Thank you for your word that it is about Jesus and that we are meant to understand it and so to follow and obey and worship Jesus. We ask that that would happen in our hearts this morning. We know that in the book of Revelation there's much that is often unclear and there's much that's mysterious and much that is not agreed upon. And yet it is your word and you've given it to us and you want us to study and obey it. And in that there's a blessing. So we want to receive that blessing. So help us, Holy Spirit, now to tune in. Give us insight, wisdom, discernment, and knowledge. Please help me now to teach the Bible in a way that brings glory, attention, and honor to Jesus. And help us to live our lives in the same way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. While stepping into the book of Revelation, as we are doing together as a church right now, can be a daunting thing. To step into the book of Revelation is to step into a strange and unfamiliar world, one full of angels and demons, of lambs, lions, horses, and dragons. In the book of Revelation, seals are broken and trumpets are blown and the contents of seven bowls are poured out on the earth. Two malicious monsters appear, one emerging from the sea with ten horns and seven heads and the other arising from the earth with lamb's horns and a dragon's voice. And throughout the book, there is thunder and lightning, and hail, and fire, and blood, and smoke. The whole book appears at first sight to contain a chaotic profusion of of weird and mysterious visions. And so, accordingly, many shy away from the book. To many, it is sealed and left to the side. But what our text tells us today is that we cannot do that. We can't shy away from it. We can't ignore it. The book is a revelation from God for us, verse 1 says. And it promises a special blessing for those who read it and who obey it or take it to heart is the word there. So it's from God. It's for us. There's a blessing in reading it, studying it, and obeying it. And we are, after all, followers of Jesus Christ. And as we learned last week, Revelation is the full and final unveiling of Jesus in all his glory and his work in all its splendor. 
So far from ignoring the book, we ought to give great attention to the book because of the great subject matter of the book, Jesus. And we must then, as followers of Jesus, seek to understand it and apply it. So how do we begin to do that? How do we start to unravel this book? Well, in the first verse alone, there are four interpretive clues. Four interpretive clues in the first, excuse me, two verses. Let's look at these. Here it is. The revelation of Jesus Christ, that's what we talked about last week, which God gave him, here's the first clue, to show to his bondservants, Second clue, the things which must soon take place. And he sent, and third clue, communicated, the word in the Greek is signified, it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to, clue number four, all that he saw. Here are, in the first two verses, four interpretive clues for the book of Revelation. Four S's, if you will, that will guide us in our understanding of the book. The first S that we saw there is the word show. What does show mean? Well, it's pretty obvious. It's not that mysterious. You don't even have to look at the Greek. It means to make visible. Let me show you something. I'm going to the picture show. Don't tell me. Show me. What a great show she put on. You know what show means. To make visible. Things were made visible to John by visions. It wasn't that he was given an outline that he was to copy down. It wasn't carved on stone. It wasn't sentences in his mind. It was visions that he saw. The contents of the book of Revelation were shown to the apostle John. The second S that we see is the word soon. That tells us that this book is a book of future things that will take place. This book is a book of prophecy. It's said explicitly there, and it's said three times in the last chapter that this book is a book of prophecy. John was shown visually things that would happen soon in the future, prophetic visions. The third S that we saw in that text was the word signify. In the New American Standard, it says communicated. The Greek word and idea is signified. These things were signified to John. To signify is to communicate with symbols. That's going to be important for us to remember that. These things were signified. They were communicated by symbols. Something shown visually about the future communicated through symbols. The final S is the word saw in verse two, right? It says that John was to write down all that he saw. That means he saw it with his eyes. He saw it with his eyes. 50 times in the book, John says, and I saw. But it wasn't something that everybody could see. It was revealed to John and he saw these things in the spirit. Look at verse 10. We'll get more of the context of verses 10 and 11 next week. But it says, John here saying, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, right? He was thinking about the Lord. He was 
resting in the Holy Spirit. He was thinking on the things of God. He was in an attitude of worship and meditation. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, Sunday, and I heard behind me a loud voice like, a, like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see. Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. So if we put those four S's together that are to guide us in our interpretation of the book, we get this. Revelation contains pictures, visions, that John saw from God while in the Spirit that revealed the future prophecy through the use of symbols, signification, communication through symbols. And these things that were shown, that will be soon, that were signified, that John saw, were visions from Jesus for us, it says in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants. John was to pass these things on to the church, it says in verse 11. Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. So it's for the followers It's for the church, and those seven churches that we will study carefully in a few weeks are representative of the church as a whole. The number seven in the book of Revelation represents completion or whole. So they represent the whole church. So this message, which was shown to John, had to do with things coming in the future, signified through symbols, which John himself saw is given to us, the church. And they are meant to be a blessing. And they are meant to be obeyed. Far from ignoring the content of the book, we are called to obey the content of the book. Again, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Revelation contains a unique Blessing for the hearers and doers of it. But if we are to be blessed, if we're to receive this promise, if we're to obey its contents, then we must first understand it. How do we interpret the book of Revelation? Well, we'll say a couple of things very quickly. Number one, it's not easy, but it's not meant to be hard. You got to get that. God's intention was not to make it hard. God's intention was not to conceal. It was to reveal. God's intention was not to obscure, but to uncover. There is something when we approach the Bible that theologians talk about called the doctrine of purposcuity. Say purposcuity. Purposcuity, a fun word that nobody uses except for theologians. It's an old word for clarity. When we think about scripture, there is the doctrine of perspicuity or clarity. God intends for his word to be clear to his people. He was wanting to communicate. Okay? So though it is hard, it's not meant to be hard. But we're going to have to give ourselves to a little bit, right? The next year of studying this book, we're going to have to... Give ourselves to it. It's not going to come real easy, but it's not meant to be obscure. It's meant to be an uncovering, an unveiling, a revelation, an apocalypse. Second point we'll mention is not everyone agrees. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) 
There are a lot of different opinions about the book of Revelation. And that is okay. You know, one of the things I love about our church is that we are very strong on the core essentials of the Christian faith, right? Very strong on those things. Like we are, we're not a liberal church. We are a theologically conservative church. We believe in the, 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 the doctrinal historic truths of the Christian faith, the inerrancy of the word of God, the deity of Jesus Christ, his literal death and resurrection on the cross, his literal ascension, ruling and reigning, his literal physical return to the earth. We are a conservative theological church, very strong on the core essentials of the Christian faith. But then we also have within our body some broad thoughts on secondary issues. Right? There's people in our body who are very strong on the gifts of the Spirit. Others who are like, ah, I'm not too sure about the gifts. And we can get along because we all agree on the core essential of Jesus, his identity and his work. There's people who are Calvinists and not Calvinists. And we're in the same church and we get along. Right? These secondary issues, we, we don't divide on those things. And listen to me carefully now. We would never divide on an interpretation of the book of Revelation. That would just be foolish. That is not something that people break up over. It's just not. If you came to me and you said, Britt, I love being a member of this church. I do not believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. I would say, you're not a member of this church. But if you come to me and you say, Britt, I do not like your interpretation of the book of Revelation, I would say, cool. Let's talk about it. That's something that we can talk about as a church. It is never something that we would divide upon as a church. If we were to do that, we have our priorities wrong. We have our priorities wrong. And wonderful men and women, faithful Christians, faithful scholars, faithful students, faithful followers of Jesus throughout the ages have differed in how they have viewed the book of Revelation and still been viewed as faithful to God. Okay? So not everyone agrees, but it's not something that we would divide over. And finally, it's not always clear. Therefore, it's not an issue of dogma. It's not always crystal clear. This is how this is supposed to be taken, and there is no other way. Therefore, we are humble in our opinions about the book of Revelation. And we realize, as I've been saying, that other thoughtful, studious, faithful Lovers of Jesus may see it a different way. That does not mean that there's many ways and they're all fine. That's not what that means. The book of Revelation does say one thing. It's to be understood that way. But we have to, as a church, understand that it's not always crystal clear. It hasn't been for 2,000 years. So we're not going to be dogmatic and say it's this way or no way. That would be arrogant. We'll try not to be that. So... There are four ways generally throughout the last 2,000 years or so that the church has interpreted the book of Revelation. We're going to talk about these somewhat extensively now. The first one is seeing it as already having been fulfilled. That's called the preterist view. We'll unpack the details in a moment. The second one sees it as unfolding over history from the time of the writing till the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's called the historist view. The third sees it as future. That is called, cleverly, the futurist view. And the final sees it as presenting fundamentals. That is the idealist 
view. Now, those are the four views that have generally been held by the church throughout history where there is some disagreement. Let's talk about each one for just a moment. The first is the preterist view. This sees it as fulfilled, as mostly having taken place in the past. Preterism says the events of Revelation were fulfilled in the early centuries AD, beginning with the destruction of Jerusalem in, that should say, 70 AD, my typo, sorry, and concluding with the overthrow of Rome. So that John was writing his book to the churches who were under Roman domination and oppression and persecution, which is true. And that the prophecies therein had primarily to do with that current Roman regime. And that it would be fulfilled in the time of that Roman empire. So that most of, and some preterists would say all of the book of Revelation has already been fulfilled. It's history when we read it. Another view, which takes a different slant, is the historist view, saying it's unfolding or happening in the present. Historicism says, Revelation is an overview of church history that describes various times of persecution and tribulation from the time of the writing to the second coming of Christ. Okay, that the things that were future had a long view, that all these middle chapters unfold over the 2,000 years of church history. This was the most popular view during the Reformation period. And people throughout time found lots of opportunities to identify symbols in the book of Revelation with people and characters and places and events in their own time. A historicist view. The futurist view says that most of the stuff in the book of Revelation is still yet future. It's coming. Futurism says Revelation is mostly about actual events that will take place just before the second coming of Jesus Christ. In contrast to the first two perspectives, it says that Revelation is about eschatology and times, not history, pastimes. This was the most popular view in the early church, the first 300 years of the church or so. And then we have the idealist view. They say that Revelation is talking about principles that are timeless truths for the church everywhere at all time. Idealism says Revelation is about timeless principles of the victory of God over evil that apply to all the church at all times. Now, these four views... By the way, I see you guys taking notes. That's good. My notes are also available for you online. These four views all have strengths and weaknesses. Strengths and weaknesses. Good, smart, biblically literate, Jesus-loving, studied people hold all of these positions. They've all got strengths and they've all got weaknesses. All of them have modified or or moderate perspectives and hardliners within the movement, right? So some people say, yeah, I kind of believe this and just real hardline on that. The good news is that all of them hold to the fact that Jesus Christ will return to, to earth literally and physically. If you don't have that, I would say you don't have Christianity. All of them agree upon that. All have had their moments. As I said, the futurist view was the most popular view in the first few hundred years of the church. 
And then in the fourth century with Augustine and others, it began to move toward the idealist perspective and more of a spiritual application of the text. And then as we got toward the Middle Ages, then the... um, uh, preterist view, or, excuse me, historicist view became more popular. They were seeing things that looked like what was happening in their world and identifying the beast with Rome and the papacy, so on and so forth. And then as scholarship developed, then the preterist view, which is the dominant view among most scholars today, became more popular. The preterist view is most popular amongst normal Christians like me. Idealism is making a bit of a comeback. More people who've been disillusioned with fanciful interpretations of the book of Revelation like the idea of idealism, that these things apply to our daily lives at all times. Historicism, almost nobody believes in that anymore because we look back on the past and say, gosh, those things just weren't fulfilled really that well at all, so that's probably not the right view, but a few people do hold it today. Now, We have a book that we're recommending that will help you through all these things called Revelation, The Four Views. I've got a bunch of them at the book table today. You can get it on Amazon. I have almost 40 commentaries on the book of Revelation. This is the one that I'm recommending to you today. What it does is it puts in columns on the page. Let me find a good looking page. All four views for all the text of the book of Revelation. All four views. So what does the idealist say about chapter 13? What does a preterist say about chapter 13? What does a futurist say? What does a historicist say about that? And then you can make some reasoned decisions, right? You can weigh, you can compare and contrast. You can talk about all of the positions are explained at the beginning of the book, the strengths, the weaknesses, their historical development, so on and so forth. This will be an excellent guide for the next year as we go through the book of Revelation together, okay? So this will... This will help you see the other views and think through how you want to view it. The good news about all the views is that all of them warn us to observe God's ways and to obey him at all times. That's good news. And so look at this quote in the spirit of kindness. None of these schools of interpretation can claim any monopoly on scholarship or faith. I've been saying this. Each group numbers many fine scholars and devout Christian believers. Therefore, complete certainty in regard to the interpretation of the apocalypse is not to be had. It is our duty to do the best we can to study the various systems and accept the view that seems right to us, but always with a certain amount of reservation and of respect for the opinions of others. That's sensible, right? That doesn't mean that they're all equally valid. That's not what we're saying. This is not some interpretive form of pluralism. We're saying that the church has not always agreed upon this. I do have a position. We're getting there. (laughs) Because it's not always clear, many people today are adopting another approach, which may be called eclecticism right? Eclectic, a gathering of different things, or parallelism, that we see some of these different truths running parallel. So eclecticism is a mixture or a combination of two or more of the four. That's helpful to me. Because when we look at the book of Revelation, some elements of the book are clearly future, clearly. Some seem to be most probably past events that have 
already occurred. Some, as is true of Bible prophecy from beginning to end, seem to have had near fulfillments in the first couple of centuries and far fulfillments at the second coming of Christ. We see that in the Old Testament prophets. We see that in the teachings of Jesus. That's a normal mode of Bible prophecy. Some of the things in the book of Revelation are definitely timeless principles that could teach all the church in every situation about Jesus. Some seem to have all three or four happening at the same time. Revelation has some of all of it. Look at verse 19, chapter 1, verse 19. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. The things that you have seen, the things that are currently, so now they're in the past, and the things that will take place later. Even at the beginning of the book of Revelation, we see that there's going to be some mixture of that. Now, these various approaches that you'll be studying through that book and others this year, and we'll be studying together, these various approaches really only apply to a portion of the book. There is much in the book of Revelation that we do agree upon, right? It's chapter 6 through 18 that seem to be the most debatable, right, where the four views come into play. Before that, we're really all on the same page for the most part. Chapters 1 through 3 are for the church as a whole at all times. Most people would agree to that, so we'll have weeks of stuff that we can all agree upon. No drama, that's good. (laughs) Chapters 4 through 5 are mostly straightforward visions of heaven and the glory of Jesus and the throne of God. We can all agree upon those things. Chapters 19 through 22 are clearly future. We can all agree upon those things. If you don't, gee whiz, come on. These things are clearly future. Jesus Christ returning, setting up the kingdom, the new heavens, the new earth, so on and so forth. So it's a little more than half of the book that is debatable. So how do we begin? In this interpretive maze, we need to remember what the first word of the book taught us last week. Remember the first word, apokalyptis in the Greek? Look here. Here-ish, coming, coming soon to a theater near you. The word revelation, which is in the Greek, the first word in the book is apokalypsis. It means, again, an unveiling, not an obscuring. We talked about this last week. An uncovering, not a concealing. Why then do most people read the book and say this seems un? Clear, this seems obscure, this seems concealed. What makes Revelation sometimes seem obscure is the use of symbols. So let's talk about the use of symbols. Again, returning to verses 1 and 2 for the interpretive clues. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated, signified it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Here's what is demanded in the first two verses. It is demanded of the reader, of the student of the book, that we take seriously what the book says happens. Okay, this is a high view of scripture. Reality, we have a high view of scripture. We take seriously what the book itself says happens. John says that he had a series of visions. 
that he heard certain sounds and that he saw certain things. And that the sights and the sounds were a communication from God of a certain kind. Again, in verse word, in verse one, excuse me, that word communicated is signified. It's the idea of communicating using symbols. What is a symbol? Pay attention now, I see some drifting heads. Thank you. What is a symbol? A symbol is a picture or an image that conveys meaning. This is really important. A symbol is a picture or an image that conveys meaning. Okay, the meaning is not the symbol itself. The symbol shows us some sort of meaning. The meaning is not the picture. The picture has a meaning. Take, for example, one of the primary symbols in the book of Revelation, Jesus as a lamb that was slain, Revelation chapter 5. He'll show up as a lamb over and over again. Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is seen as a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. Now, this is a symbol. The meaning is not the picture. Jesus is not a dead lamb with lots of eyes and lots of horns. Right? We get that. That's pretty clear. The meaning is not the picture. It's a symbol. Jesus is not a dead lamb with lots of horns and lots of eyes. This is easy. The meaning is symbolized by the picture. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins who is sovereign and powerful. That's the representation of the horns and the eyes. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins who is sovereign and powerful, right? That's what we get from the symbol, from the vision, from the image. Think about it. The Bible does this all the time. A very popular example of this is Ezekiel 37 in the Valley of Dry Bones. What we're not supposed to understand is that there was in a valley a bunch of bones that actually came together and what it means is that old bones can make a new person and that person was somewhere walking around Israel. That's not what that means. It was symbolic of the fact that Israel was spiritually dead and had been scattered, but God would cause them to be regathered and breathe new life into them and bring them the new covenant. Right? So it was a symbolic vision of something real and literal and true that God was doing, but he communicated it through pictures. Take, for example, Acts chapter 10. Peter is at the house of Simon the Tanner. He's on the roof. It's lunchtime. He's praying. And it says in Acts chapter 10 that he fell into a trance. That's creepy. And that he had a vision. That's normal in the Bible. He fell into a trance and he had a vision. And a sheet came down and it was full of four-footed animals with hooves. And God said, Peter, kill and eat. How are we to take that? Does that mean that in the New Testament, the new mode of God's people being fed would be sheets coming down and whatever animal is on it, you kill it and you eat it? That's not what it means. That's what's pictured, but what it meant was that the gospel of Jesus Christ had come and it was for all the nations. And Peter was no longer to only go to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles who were previously considered unclean, but now through the gospel of Jesus Christ have been declared clean. Right? There was a wonderful meaning behind the symbol. 
And what is key to understand is that symbols such as these in the Bible, and especially in the book of Revelation, this is, this is important, are meant to be understood more than merely pictured. They're meant to be understood more than merely pictured. Again, the meaning is not the picture. The meaning is symbolized, signified, communicated by the picture. Here's another example. In Revelation chapter 7, Christians are pictured in heaven before the throne of God and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. See, that's better understood than pictured. It's quite a creepy picture. There we are in heaven and we have bloody robes and we washed our robes in blood, but somehow in the blood they became white. And so are we to think about heaven as a place where we'll go and our clothes will be dripping with blood, but it will be white? That's not what's being communicated there, right? What is being communicated is that the only way that we can be in heaven standing before the throne of God is having been washed white by the blood of Jesus Christ who who is himself our righteousness and has made us righteous by becoming sin on our behalf on the cross. That's what that means. But it's been communicated in this case with pictures. Elsewhere, it's not pictures. It's like written out like the book of Romans. Here, it's given to us in pictures. It's meant to be understood, though, not necessarily imagined. The descriptions are descriptions of symbols, not the reality conveyed by the symbols. We get this. Okay, this is not that hard. We get this. Republicans are not elephants, and Democrats are not donkeys. Nobody looks and says, well, I guess, I guess Democrats are actually donkeys. That's the, nobody does that. We use symbols all the time. We, we get that. I have actually no idea what the meaning is, but someone did at some time. My mom does. I guarantee you my mom does. But we get that. Democrats are not donkeys. Republicans are not elephants. There's a meaning behind it. There's something symbolized. When we look at a map and we see symbols on a map, we don't say, oh, Carpinteria is a dot. (laughs) Sacramento is a star. We don't say that. We know that those represent the places. Okay, but beyond those sorts of cultural symbols and beyond symbols on a map, biblical symbols often communicate in a more complex way. They don't only convey information like symbols on a map. Here's Carpinteria. Here's Sacramento. They invoke feeling, emotion, deep theological ongoing reflection. Again, the example of Jesus as the lamb that was slain in Revelation 5, a principal image in Revelation It's easy to decode and recognize this symbol, the lamb that John saw. He saw a lamb. It's easy to decode that and recognize that as Jesus. Again, the symbol is meant to unveil, not obscure, to uncover, not conceal. But the image works by evoking a range of associations, right? When we begin to think upon that symbol, that image, we might think about sacrifice and atonement, and all that comes with that. We might have some Old Testament connotations in the nation of Israel and think about Passover and liberation 
We might think about the representation of purity and innocence that is a lamb. There's a reason that God chose to represent his son with a lamb. And so all of these ideas, as we reflect upon them, sacrifice, atonement, Passover, liberation, purity, and innocence, come to mind as we think upon the meaning of the symbol. You see, our understanding of Jesus is enhanced by the use of this pictorial symbol. Here's what one author says about this, and I I like it. I know that's small for some of you in the back. I'll read it. Symbols also help to move readers by affecting the emotions and will. Portrayal of the lamb as a slain victim can help to awaken the reader's sympathy toward the one whom the lamb represents, even before they consciously analyze the sacrificial implications of the imagery. Conversely, The ugly portrayal of a violent beast with seven heads, ten horns, and blasphemies pouring from its mouth can awaken an intuitive sense of aversion that precedes any attempt to interpret the beast's significance. People may not understand exactly what the beast is, but they quickly recognize that they want nothing to do with it. The images through which Revelation signifies its meaning are an element of persuasion. The book is not only meant to dispense information, it is designed to strengthen the reader's commitments. When the images move readers to renounce evil and affirm their loyalty to God and Christ, they are effective in their communication, even if the readers cannot explain the meaning of every detail. So there's a reason in the last book of the Bible that God chose symbols to communicate. We have to take seriously what the text says happens. Symbols are, throughout Scripture, an important part of God's revelation, meant to reveal, not conceal. Now, you guys still with me? Told you this would be a boring sermon. I'm having a wonderful time. Now, what I am not saying is that scripture is primarily allegorical. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that what we're supposed to do with scripture is spiritualize it. That's not what I'm saying. We're not talking about allegorizing or spiritualizing the text. We do believe that it is, here's the big word that we've all been waiting for, literal. We do believe that it is literal. But let's talk for a moment what that means. A literal interpretation of scripture allows for the use of symbols to convey literal truth. Here's an example. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi with his followers. And he says to Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, Did he hand Peter actual keys? Were there actual keys? And Jesus pulled them from his robe and said, Pete, nobody else has these, dude. Keep it secret, keep it safe. Here's the keys. He didn't hand him literal keys. But Peter used the keys, the symbol of them, to literally open the way of the gospel to Jews and Gentiles. 
In Acts chapter 2, he preached the gospel and Jews were saved. In Acts chapter 10, he preached the gospel and Gentiles were saved. There wasn't a literal key, but there was literal meaning and literal application, the preaching of the gospel, so that people could enter the kingdom of God. You understand how that works? This is a literal interpretive method. Not that Peter pulled out actual keys in Acts 2 and 10, but that Peter actually, literally unlocked the way of salvation by preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Take now an example from Revelation chapter 16, verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. That's a vivid image. Now we get stuck if our goal is to just picture that. Right? We're like, okay, there's a dragon and there's a beast and there's a prophet and their mouths are open and there's frogs crawling out of their mouths. We can do that if we want. But we can get a little stuck if the goal is to just picture the picture. The idea is to understand the picture. Is the literal interpretation that in the future or the past, depending on how you take the book, a dragon and a beast and a false prophet will have frogs come out of their mouth? No, it's more than that. It's an image. It's a picture. It's a symbol that God showed John pictorially to mean literally that Satan and the Antichrist will unleash demonic activity on earth. Right? The picture is not the meaning. The picture reveals a meaning. To interpret scripture literally, as I do, does not mean to ignore the use of symbols. To interpret symbols as if they were not symbols. But we also do not take as symbolic what is not meant to be symbolic. The return of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 19. He really comes back. The renewal of all things. That really happens. The great white throne judgment, that really happens. It can be hard at times, admittedly, to determine in Scripture as a whole, but especially in the book of Revelation, what is symbolic and what is not. But that's the hard work of interpretation. That's the task of studying. Sometimes the book of Revelation will help us. Here's an example. Chapter 1. Verse 20, right? John just saw Jesus and he was walking among seven golden lampstands and he had seven stars in his hand. Well, we'll look at verse 12 first. Verse 12, Revelation 1.12. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands was one like the son of man, so on and so forth. So it goes on talking about Jesus. And then in verse 20, Jesus is talking now and says, as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Sometimes the book of Revelation is just going to help us and say, here's what this symbol represents. Other times it's not. And we're going to have to talk about that going to have to wrestle through that. We're going to have to do our best to refer to the rest of scripture to try to uncover what that means. As a whole, we'll have to decide, does the book of Revelation and its symbols tell us about a time long past, preterism, the whole of history, historicism, the future, futurism, or timeless truths, idealism? 
Or is it, in some way, sometimes, a little bit of all of them? Oh, Britt, I just want to know what you think. Just tell me what you think already. I'm trying to save you from that. I'm, I'm going to tell you what I think. But I'm trying to save you from just assuming that whatever the pastor says has got to be the right way to see it. I think that Christianity has to move beyond that. And I'm thankful that our church is not like that. I'm thankful that all of you don't hold the exact same theological positions on secondary issues that I do. I think we all need to be students of the Word of God. That's why I, I recommended this this commentary to you that presents all the views rather than a different one. I want us to be students. I want us to wrestle through that and I want us to honor one another if we come to different conclusions and love one another enough to have some open, humble conversations. Does that sound good? So what do I think? Who cares? Moving on. No, just kidding. I'll tell you. I think that we will find that the book of Revelation is mostly about the future. At least it was at the time of writing. That's very clear from chapter 1. Chapter 22 says over and over, this is a book of prophecy. It's about the future. It does not seem to me to have been sufficiently fulfilled in the first couple centuries or in the following several centuries. So I don't subscribe to preterism or historicism. It seems to me to speak mostly of events yet to come and that precede the second coming of Jesus Christ. Futurism, again, I think Revelation is about eschatology, the study of last things, not history. It certainly does contain truths and principles that are timeless, idealism, but not to the exclusion of actual events, people, and places. Idealism, I don't think, is wrong in what it asserts, it's wrong in what it denies. I think there are timeless principles, but there are also actual events, places, locations, and people. So at times, over the next years we're going through the book, I will offer some of the options and we'll think those through. And some of you will be like, yeah, that's my option, dude, totally right there. Oh, I don't know about that one. I'll, I'll offer options sometimes when it doesn't seem real clear to me. There are going to be other times when we're going through the book of Revelation, and I'm going to say this to you with all authority. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I hope you'll be okay with that. But here's what I believe about the book of Revelation in a nutshell that the book made sense in context to the original audience. Preterism has at least that right. That it contains timeless truths and principles about God and the world. Idealism has at least that right. That much of it is yet future. Futurism has that right. That it does picture a time of great tribulation before the return of Jesus Christ. Literalism involved there that before the tribulation, the church will be raptured. Before the tribulation, my opinion, pre-tribism. Don't have to agree, we'll present the options. That after the tribulation, Jesus is coming back to establish his kingdom on earth. Premillennialism. We'll talk about exactly what that means and postmillennialism and amillennialism, but that's what I believe. That the book of Revelation is a book of great hope and joy and faith. Gospel-oriented perspective. And finally... The goal of Revelation is to show Jesus to be the great and glorious king of all kings who loves us and is sovereign over every world event, a Christ-centered perspective. 
So I think it's a futurist approach that comes closest to doing justice to the nature and the purposes of revelation. But I'll, I'll tell you what I don't plan to do in the next year. I don't plan to engage in sensationalism. That's not my goal. I think that the future is not about Antichrist. The future is about Jesus Christ. And the goal of the book of Revelation is not to get us looking for who might be the Antichrist. It's to get us looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. So some of you will be disappointed. You'll be like, Britt, why don't you see that Obama is the Antichrist? Why can't you? Why don't you? I just don't see it. I just... And I, I, I'm, you know, I have opinions about that kind of stuff, but I'm going to be careful not to say, gosh, maybe this world event, maybe that. Sometimes we'll suggest stuff because if you look around at our world, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But my mom was also doing that 50 years ago. I remember being a little kid and people holding up the newspaper and saying, this is a fulfillment. It's happening right now. And a long time has gone by. So maybe it was in some way, maybe it wasn't. That's okay to do, but that's not the main point. The main point of the book of Revelation is looking for and obeying Jesus Christ. So I'm going to try not to be a sensationalist, but to be a faithfulist, just made up a word. (laughs) In that, I'll tell you what I am going to do, what my goal is. My goal, our goal, the goal of the book of Revelation is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And to bring to bear on every part of the text, every situation and circumstance, any world event, the comfort, hope, joy and strength that comes from knowing that Jesus is the first and the last, that Jesus is the beginning and the end, that he's the lion and the lamb. He's the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. He's the one who is high and exalted, great and victorious, ruling and reigning, present in the churches and coming again to make everything brand new. That is the goal and our goal in the book of Revelation. We're 49 minutes into the sermon. I need four more minutes. Can you do that? Four more minutes? Are you cool? Okay, four more minutes, because this is a a pertinent question. So I've already said I think it has mostly to do with the future, but what of verse 1 saying that the subject matter revelation is the things which must soon take place? The book is about the things which must soon take place but it's been about 1,900 years since that was written. Maybe preterism is right. Maybe historicism is right. I think that we have to understand how the New Testament uses the idea of soon in eschatological matters. You know the word soon. Soon is an important word in our lives. Depending on whether or not something is soon determines the way that we live, right? If you know that you're going to have a baby very soon, you don't go skydiving. (laughs) Knowing whether or not something is very soon determines the way that we live. Let's be serious for a moment. If we knew that we were going to die soon, that our death was imminent, we would live very differently. Suddenly, every moment is precious. Every event is meaningful. Conversely, if we assume that life will go on forever, then one day blurs into another and nothing seems to mean too much. You got all the time in the world. But when we're made aware of an end, every moment and every perception comes to life. 
This is the New Testament's intention with the word soon. We are to live our lives for Jesus as though every day might be our last. That is how we're supposed to live. That is called the doctrine of imminence. If something is imminent, it means it may happen at any moment, not to be confused with imminent, which means it's present within. Imminent means it may happen, just a vowels difference there. It may happen at any moment. This is the way God intends for his people to live. Jesus started this whole thing in Matthew. Jesus speaking, Matthew 24, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. For this reason, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is a faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes." Jesus' intention was that we wouldn't know the exact time of his arrival, but that it would always seem soon to us. Not from disingenuineness, he said the father knew, but from a point of faithfulness. It's true. Jesus could have come for his church at any time and we're to live that way. The New Testament authors picked up on this. Paul in Romans says, do this knowing the time that it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. If it was soon then, it's very soon now. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Good old Pete. Pete picked up on it too. First Peter, he said, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. What Christ taught his followers was this principle, that if we think that the days are unending and we have all all the time in the world, nothing means anything. But if we know that there is an end and that it may be soon, then everything becomes very meaningful. And we begin to obey. We begin to live faithful, intentional lives for Jesus. For the time is near. This is a perspective of the whole New Testament. But nowhere is it more pervasive than in the book of Revelation. And this is part of the appeal of the book. It seems to talk about the end. And it seems to hold the possibility that the end is very near. And that's interesting to us. When you look at the world, has been to many people, more than ever now. But what does this accomplish? Well, the book is moral instruction. We're supposed to enjoy. I mean, we're supposed to obey. Obey. Preaching too long. But it also means great joy. Last quote, last thing I'll say. Far from covering life with a shroud of gloom, The intense awareness of the end of all things infuses the book's imagery with sharpness and rich color. The announcement that the time is near provokes not resignation or a feeling that nothing matters, 
but on the contrary, a kind of jubilation at the preciousness of life and at the world God created and will recreate anew in the events that must soon take place. For the writer of this book and for his readers, the time of the end will be a time of new beginning. Lord, thank you for your wonderful book. Thank you that it is a great unveiling of the person of Jesus and the way that we're supposed to live and the joy that we're supposed to have in light of that. Lord, we confess there's still much that is unclear, but we're going to journey through it together and we ask that you help us. Not just to get the information right, but to get life right. To know that you're risen and you're ruling and you're reigning. That you're King of kings, Lord of lords, and you're our Lord. And you're to be adored, worshipped, and obeyed. That truly, the time is near. So make us, Lord, evangelists. Make us missionaries. Make us ministers and servants, stewards of your grace. Cause us, by the help of your Holy Spirit, to live faithful, fruitful lives for your glory. Because you rule and you reign, and you're coming again, and the time is near. We ask this together. In Jesus' name, amen.